I think the biggest clarity that I gained about who I am and what I bring to the table um, was when we did this exercise where we had to kind of narrow down from 12 words to, I think it was eight words to you know, two words. And we finally found these two words that really identified uh, who we were. And it really um, became kind of like a, a rally cry for us. And mine was restoring value. And so the thing that I had learned about myself through the process was that something that not only do I not just enjoy doing it, but something that actually sets my life on fire is being able to restore value to other people. And when I see people who um, feel like they don't have value, helping them to see the value that, that God has assessed to them. My two words are simplifying situations. And my purpose is to help others eliminate distractions and elevate what matters most. And how that has worked out in my life, or I'm living that out right now, is living with margin. Um, have gone through relationships and tasks and everything within my life and prioritized those um, and pruned back a lot. So I live with white space now where I'm available to people and to Jesus. You know, going through the process, uh, my two words were restoring alignment. And that could be physical alignment, or even spiritual alignment, as far as that goes. Um, in God's power, He basically works through me. I'm just an extension of God. And I love that He uses me as a vessel and uh, that I can help people restore their alignment. Um, I've been restored, I mean, as far as what I do for a living is help people get back to function physically and sometimes I gotta balance their muscles sometimes I've got to realign their adjustment to make sure they're in line so their muscles work properly uh, and so these two words were just like wow <laughs> God you are speaking directly to me because I don't know who else that would have pertained to but me and then uh, he kind of basically said, your life call was aspiring holiness, exists to restore alignment, build community, inspiring passion, cultivating the fruits of the Spirit, honoring God's will. So when I would write down the words, <laughs> I felt like they were God's words, not my words. I mean, I don't speak like that at all, <laughs> but it's pretty awesome. My two words I came down to cultivating family. And that I really thought about both words, but what's the one thing that I enjoy doing most is being with my family, being with your family, getting to know other people's families. Um, but family can also be brought into your neighborhood family, your school family, your church family, and your biological family, um, as well as adopted, you know, friend family. Uh, and so it's just really neat when we're together. I love including everybody. So having that inclusive family feel everywhere I go. Um, and I really debated on cultivating versus creating, but it's not that I'm looking to start 
something new everywhere I go. I'm really just wanting to feed into and hopefully enrich, um, make connections, whether it's with me or connect other people, but just really cultivating family and that uh, getting deeper and getting really being really genuine with everyone that we come across. You know, the clarity that's come into my life as a result of that has really been um, just knowing that there is something that is more clear about my purpose in life than I'd known before. And it's really given me a sense of whether it's in my business or in my family, tying back some things to what decision do I need to make here. Uh, and it's really uh, an example that I can think of is I was invited to help lead worship in the kids area. And it was one of those things that there's a lot of good things I can do that can get in the way of the great things. So I started asking the question, if my two words are unleashing potential, how do I have that invitation become something that I maximize that? So I talked with them and I said, hey, if my son can play keyboard with us as we lead worship, that becomes a big win. And so I'm gonna maximize the opportunity rather than just be busy with one more thing. So it's really given me something to ground myself to so that I can make choices about what am I gonna pour myself into in personal life, professional life, and other things. Good morning, Heartland. Uh, it's good to be back. Obviously, I didn't jack that one up too bad because they invited me to come and talk with you all again. And I got to say, when I'm here at Heartland, it feels like home to me. Uh, my wife and I were a part of a church plant in South Bend, Indiana, in the shadow of the Golden Dome, Notre Dame country. And the community of faith that emerged there over the 22 years that we served feels so... Uh, like there's a shared DNA between Heartland and that community. So when I'm here, it just feels uh, like this warm, soft spot. It feels great. And, uh, and also, I just got to say, uh, your leaders are uh, some of my best friends in the church in Kansas City. And they're so authentic, so humble, and also incredibly good looking. Don't you agree? <laughs> it's a great crew. So it's really fun to be with you this morning again. And I want to start by asking you a question. What are the places that are on your ultimate destination travel bucket list? What are the, what's one place that you would love to go to before you kick the bucket? You got one in mind? Okay, just turn to your neighbor, go ahead and share what that place is. And if you said Tonganoxie, come up with another one. <laughs> Dream a little bigger, all right? So share that with your neighbor, what your, uh, your bucket list travel destination is. Is anyone ready to get out of here now, go on vacation? Well, listen, for centuries, ardent world travelers have created these uh, ultimate destination lists. And one of those categories is called wonders of the world. There's the ancient wonders of the world. There's the modern wonders of the world. There's the natural wonders of the world. And one of the destinations that invariably makes at least one, sometimes two of those lists, is the Taj Mahal, which many consider to be the masterpiece of India. It's made up of this uh, ivory, translucent marble. It radiates like a diamond in the days the sun reflects off of it. it. It looks like a pearl glowing at night. It took over 20 years to build it. They had over 20,000 artisans who 
laid in these semi-precious stones into these breathtakingly beautiful designs, literally countless thousands of them that just wrap every single part of the Taj Mahal. And it is breathtaking. We've all seen pictures of it, but it's one thing to see it. It's another thing to experience it. In fact, one of our presidents said there's two types of people in the world, those who have experienced the Taj and those who have not. And my wife and I, we've had the honor of leading a lot of teams to India over the years because we were in a really deep long-term partnership with the indigenous church planning movement there. So we would take people on these arduous adventures into remote places in India, but we would tag a visit to the Taj as a carrot onto the end of the trip. And I remember the first time that we went there, again, I was just trying to take in the wonder of this masterpiece. And curiously, something odd happened. Uh, Some local tourists, some Indian folks came up and they asked if they could take our picture, my wife and I, Michelle, with the Taj, total strangers. And I was like, I guess. So here we are awkwardly standing with some strangers taking a photo. That got done. And about five minutes later, it happened again. And then it happened again, and then again, and again, and again. Over two hours, we were asked six different times to take pictures with total strangers in front of the Taj Mahal. And after the last one, I was kind of frustrated, and I said to Michelle, it really is frustrating that they keep mistaking me for Brad Pitt. This is exhausting. (laughs) She rolled her eyes just like you did. Maybe Bob Saget, maybe Bob Saget? I've also heard Daniel Stern, the bad guy, you know, one of the bad guys in Home Alone. That one's really encouraging when I get that one. It's like, awesome. My life is awesome. I've even got Eminem a couple times, which is, I don't know. I will not try to rap, though. Don't worry about it. But I thought, this is crazy. Here's this couple from Indiana, right? And these people are standing in front of the masterpiece of India, and they want a picture with a couple Hoosiers? Indiana's not on anybody's bucket list, trust me. And then a little later, I think it was a whisper from heaven. And this this question came to my mind. If Jesus was standing in front of the Taj Mahal, what would he say is the masterpiece? The Taj or the people standing in front of it? If Jesus was at the Taj Mahal, who would he want his picture with? The Taj or with the people? I think he would say those people because they are my masterpiece. They are actually the masterpiece of India. And it's interesting because we will travel the world to be able to see the wonders. But is it possible that you and I have been passing by the wonder we look at in the mirror every single morning? From the perspective of the creator God, You are his masterpiece. Listen to what St. Augustine said. He said, Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. And it is time to start wondering. Here, Heartland, you've been on this journey over the last month to discover that you are a masterpiece, that you are one and seven billion, that you are uniquely designed by God as a masterpiece for a unique masterpiece mission. You're not an accident. You're not a speck on the timeline of history. When you were born, God didn't say, 
Whoa, where did that one come from? I didn't get the paperwork on this one. No, 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 no. The scripture says what Ephesians is telling you is that before time began, God had a dream in his mind that had your name on it. And that when you were born, God had already designed for you this these good things, this set body of good works that has your name on it. And we look at people like Martin Luther King and say, of course he had a calling. Or Mother Teresa, she had a calling. Or, or Billy Graham, he had a calling. But then we think, me, I get a job. But what I'm here to remind you of this morning is if you believe that, you've been hoodwinked because you are a masterpiece. Designed by God for a unique masterpiece mission. You've been born on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. Can I get an amen? amen? And you are a masterpiece. And God has designed you to live into this new dream. He's got a dream for who you will become and what you will contribute to this world. And that God dream, it doesn't need to remain a mystery. It is knowable and nameable. And that's what this journey's been about in this series. How do we get a few clicks closer to understanding and naming and knowing my special calling? And it's a process that unfolds over time. You know when you go to the optometrist, you have to sit in that chair and they start clicking the lens. Is this better or is this better? Is this better? And I get stressed out. I'm like a type A person. I want to ace the test. I'm like, I don't know. Which one's better? You know? See, we just want you all to take a deep breath and say, we're going on this journey. And over time, God will keep clicking in these lenses until you're getting more and more clarity so you can name and know your masterpiece mission. And to make that a little bit more tangible, we've used the metaphor of an arrow. And in the first couple of weeks of the series, we looked at the rod of that arrow and said, that is analogous to story. In other words, there's God's story and there's your story. And you're going to find meaning when God's story begins to interpret your story. So God's story is revealed in the scriptures through this redemptive narrative. And first of all, it tells us who God is. That God is glorious. So guess what? I don't have to fear others. That God is great. So I don't have to be in control. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. And God is gracious, so I don't have to earn it. God is great and glorious and good and gracious. And aren't you glad to hear that this morning? That's who our God is. And the scripture reveals to us who God is. But not only that, what God has done and what God is doing and what God is going to do. He's redeeming and he's restoring all things. And we get to join him. And if we know who God is, then we can know who we are. And see, our story begins to take on significance and meaning as we interpret it through God's story. And, and that's about meaning. And then the next couple weeks, you, you looked at gifts and passions. And gifts are what you're good at, your talents, your abilities. And that's like the knock at the back of the arrow. And when you place your gifts and your abilities, it, it, like a knock going into the string, into the hands of God, and that is unleashed... It's more than merely human effort producing merely human result. Your ordinary gifts can take on an extraordinary impact. And your gifts show you what you can do. But your passion is like the fletchings at the back of the arrow that give direction and precision. Your passion, your passion for causes or certain people groups, that'll show you where and who your calling is with and for. And as all of that comes together, see that your gifts and passion are about movement and God's story 
and, and your story about meaning and where movement and meaning intersect, that's your sweet spot. That's your special calling. That is your one-of-a-kind masterpiece mission. And it's the heart of the leaders of this, this family, this community, that every single child of, of God would know. That's your birthright. It's your birthright to know your unique calling. And that's life fully alive. And we've been looking at the, the story of David and how he embodies all of this. And today, here's the big thought that we're going to dive into David's story again to discover. And it's this. Calling is what gives our story, passions, and gifting purpose. Calling is where that meaning and the movement intersects. And now my story and my passions and my gifting are infused with a new sense of purpose. And Calling is a, it's a multidimensional thing. There's, there's layers to it. Anybody getting hungry? It's almost lunchtime. Okay, so I'm going to draw you a sandwich, and this is going to make you even more hungry and want to get out of here. So hopefully you can lean in and take a bite of this. This right here is a calling sandwich. This top bun is what you could call general calling. And when it comes to your calling, there's, there's a, a primary calling that all of us share. You know, church is not a building. It's a body of people. Church is not a program. It's a people. Church is not an event. It's ordinary people infused with this extraordinary mission from Jesus. And the scripture tells us as the people of God what our general calling is. And in fact, Jesus at one point said, let me give you the cliff notes. All the law and the prophets comes down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbors yourself. There's this extraordinary call to love God and to love others and to love ourselves. And the Bible begins to unpack with incredible detail and color and nuance what it means to live a life of love. And we are all of us called to that all of the time. And it's so important to immerse our minds in God's story so we don't get hijacked on what our real purpose is and what our, our, our ultimate calling is, this general calling. But then down here at this bottom bun, this is the specifics of your life. And again, this includes the nuances of your story, which again are one of a kind, and your gifts, which are unique to you, and your passions. And there's a way that you can reveal the goodness of God to the world that no one else can do. Because your story and your gifts and your passion are completely unique. One of my heroes is a guy named Brendan Manning. And uh, he was my mentor from afar through his books and through his teaching. And then later on in life, I had the privilege of uh, getting to know him through retreats and some other scenarios. And, and every time I would be at one of the retreats, I would reach out to him to, to see if he might want to have a lunch or coffee. And he always soundly rejected me, you know, so... But, he, but obviously he thought I was a fanboy, and I was. Uh, but one of the stories that he tells about uh, our kind of the specifics of our life, uh, he was in a disillusioned time in his life, and he was actually living in Mississippi at the time. He said, I was wandering down this backwoods road, this muddy road in Mississippi. And I, he said, I could see this guy up at this intersection, and he was talking out loud. And he said, as I got closer, the guy was preaching, preaching to nobody. 
And he said, as I walked up, he said these words, which were from heaven to me. I needed to hear them. And he said, he stood at that corner, and then he looked at me, and he says, you better be who you is, because if you ain't who you is, you is who you ain't. In other words, stop trying to be something you're not, and realize your uniqueness. Be who you is, because there's something God wants to show the world uniquely through you. But... These aspects alone need to be infused and pulled up towards this general calling. And see, when these two forces start to intersect, when the specifics of your life begin to intersect, the the general calling and the mission of God in this middle zone right here, this is where your special calling will begin to emerge. Your masterpiece mission. And we're going to see what this looks like in the story of David. And it begins with a very simple question. Who are you? Who are you? And when we get asked that question, you know, we've got the, the typical routine answers. Like we'll talk about our roles, you know, uh, or our relationships. Like I would say, hey, I'm a husband to Michelle. Uh, I've got three daughters. I'm a father. Uh, and then we also typically go to jobs. So I would say, hey, I'm, I'm the director of this thing called the Kansas City Underground. We operate kind of like a mission agency in Kansas City. We help normal people discover that they've been sent by God to the places where they live, work, learn, and play. And we help them learn how to live like loving, humble missionaries in those places and to partner with Jesus and to love people well. And what happens is new disciples emerge. And as m- disciples begin to multiply, you have this new family entity called the church. And then we teach people how to live like extended spiritual families in the network of relationships that God has sent them to. And we're multiplying these little microchurches around the city, and then they operate in networks. And we feel like if there was a missionary in every street and a microchurch in every single neighborhood, it would transform the spiritual landscape of our city. Okay, that was my pitch. How did it go? Yeah, see, I would tell you, that's my job. That's what I do. But you can already tell there's something below that job that's deeper and bigger, right? Now we're starting to get below the surface into what? Special calling. And see, God wants everyone to be able to just say, God, here's my unique mission. Here's my unique masterpiece mission. And it starts with this question, who are you? And David is asked this question point blank in 1 Samuel 17. This is right after he's taken Goliath down. And he's asked again, who are you? And let's see what he says. Starting with verse 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, well, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. And catch this one. David still was holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. So he's starting with the surface level answer. Because if David were to get into his calling, it would be an existential threat to King Saul. Do you remember why? A little bit before this, if you rewind the tape a little bit, about five years earlier, 
Samuel, who is the prophet in Israel at the time. And the prophets are the ones, they have their ear to God. They have eyes to see. And the spirit of the, of the living God spoke to Samuel and said, listen, Saul's time is coming to a close. See, Saul got off the rail uh, corruption was filling his heart. He had this, now it, this never happens to public leaders in our day, but Saul was getting very, very narcissistic and self-obsessed. And he was mishandling his position and oppressing people rather than liberating people. And God tells Samuel, there's, there's a new king. And I want you, and he tells him exactly where to go. He says, I want you to go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. And so he gets there, and he meets Jesse, and he says, one of your sons is going to be anointed king of Israel. So he rounds up his boys, and he brings out seven sons. And it's sort of like, you know, the, the, the beauty pageant. I guess, you know, they kind of parade in. And Samuel is like Simon Cowell on America's Got Time. He's like, ah, that ain't, no, ah, no, ah, 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 all seven of them out. And then Samuel says, is this it? Do you have any other sons? And then Jesse says, well, there's another one out in the field. It's kind of like, well, we've got this other runt. <laughs> I guess we could bring him in. And sure enough, when he comes down, we don't know exactly what happened. I don't know if there was a light bulb hanging above David's head, but Sammy looked at him. He said, this is the one. And I just want to just quick sidebar. Some of you in this room, you feel like you're the runt. And one of the predominant themes of the scripture is how God is the champion for the underdog. He's an expert at redeeming the runt. He's the expert at transforming the trembling. He's the expert at taking the ordinary and the mundane and filling it with magnificent and extraordinary meaning. So if you're feeling like the runt today, you're in good company because that's who David was. He was like the black sheep of his family, low man on the totem pole. And that's the one that Samuel knew the Lord said, this is the one. And then get this, he's anointed as king. Is this a big moment or what? He anointed as king of Israel. And then, of course, you know exactly what happened next. He went back to the hillside and started shepherding again. What? Which, which, by the way, I think this is an interesting moment. Again, that shows the humanity of the people in this book. Like, apparently Jesse didn't believe it, right? How do I know that? Because if he really believed it, he'd be like, all right, let's, let's get him to king training school. Like, let's get things, you know, let's prepare the way. But he's like, go back and watch the sheep. It's going to be another bad day for David up there, you know? I didn't do that first service, that just came out, I'm sorry. That was, that was Daniel Stern to me, just I'm channeling Daniel Stern. And David doesn't really say anything. And I just wanna to say to you, some of you are in the same spot. Like you've been hearing for weeks, you have a special calling, you have a masterpiece mission, and you know what, you don't really believe it right now. I wanna tell you something. Jesus believes in you and your special calling more than you believe in him and his mission. Just open your heart. Take a little step away from unbelief towards belief to just court the idea that this is possible. And what's interesting is David goes up back to the hillside. And what does he start doing? The same stuff he was doing before. He's watching sheep. 
He, he's, he's learning how to use his sling to protect the sheep from the wolves and the bears and the mountain lions. Uh, apparently, he played the harp because later on we find out that he's a very skilled musician and songwriter. So he's learning to play the harp. This does not sound like the resume for a king. It sounds like the pastime of a hippie. But what's interesting, if you think about his story, five years later when he gets called out from the hillside to basically deliver food to his brothers, it's still a mundane mission. Take the Taco Bell to the front line, you know. And then he gets there and there's this, this moment of revelation that he's called to run to this battle against this giant. How did he win that battle? Does anyone remember? What did he use? What was it? What was it? A sling. And where did he learn how to use this sling? Oh, up there when he was anonymous, when it was just a mundane part of his everyday job. Hmm. And if you've looked at your Bible, you'll notice right in the middle is the book of Psalms, which is literally how billions of people to worship and to pray. And you know who wrote a bunch of those Psalms? David. And do you imagine he learned to play them on his harp? And where did he learn to play his harp? Up there when he was anonymous, doing his mundane, everyday job. Hmm. And David would be known as the shepherd king, the warrior poet. And guess where he was being trained? When he was anonymous, known by nobody, up on a hillside, doing ordinary stuff. And what's fascinating is between David's anointing as king and his inauguration as king, guess what? There's one, two, three, four, Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen stinking chapters. That's a long time. Where it seems like, is this gonna happen? And he's in limbo and it feels like he's still stuck, you know, out on some cul-de-sac on the back 40, not going anywhere. And if you feel that way, know you're in good company. God always takes his people on that journey. No one gets to skip the 15 chapters. The 15 chapters are essential. We need the 15 chapters. And again, we're, we're back to David's story here. He understands his general calling. He's called to love the Lord, his God, with all of his heart. He's called to honor his parents. And they've told him that means you're a shepherd. And so he gives himself to that. And while he's up there, he's learning to love God. And he's building a, an intimate life of prayer and worship. And, and he's learning the skills of his trade and even though nobody notices and his dad thinks he's a runt, he's still doing it to pursue excellence because God is worthy. And, and down here, there's all these specifics of his story that are coming together, but you're, you're going to begin to see how these start to intersect and it reveals his unique special calling. And that becomes apparent at the moment of Goliath. But it was happening long before that in those invisible 15 chapters. And see, one of the stereotypes we have about calling is we always think it's going to hit us like a bolt out of the blue. Like, bam! Like, we're going to be like Ariel emerging out of the water. Oh, 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 you know? And then it immediately we'll go into like full calling mode, and it's going to be like an awesome movie that's resolved in 90 minutes, and I'm like Rocky at the end. dun 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 You know? And then when it doesn't go that way, it's like, I guess I'm not called, or I missed God. And, but that's not actually a really thorough reading of how this works in the Bible. I mean, I could show you a lot of other examples. 
like Moses had to, guess what he had to do too? He had to be a shepherd for a long time. I mean, you could go through a lot of these stories. And see, in those 15 chapters, between where God plants the seed of the calling and where it begins to break through the surface to become a mighty oak, that in between times where God is doing what I think is his best work, he's like seasoning, seasoning us and he's developing our character. He's making us people that can be trusted. Not perfect people, but people that are growing in emotional and spiritual and relational maturity so that when we get the positions and we get the breakthroughs, we don't go the route of Saul and make it all about me. And make it some kind of narcissistic, addictional kind of fix that, uh, where it's about my popularity or it's about my likes or it's about my income or it's a, about the corner office or it's about filling in the blank. No, during the 15 chapters, he is training us and he's equipping us. There's mundane things to us, but later on, they're going to become extraordinary tools in the hands of God. And it's in those 15 chapters that we learn to begin to love God for God's sake. We stop treating God like some cosmic vending machine in the sky, and if I can just do the right rain dance and shake the machine the right way, I'll get what I want out of it. I begin to realize, no, actually God is the treasure. God is the prize. And if I have him, I have everything I need and everything I want. Like David, we become people after God's own heart. It's in those 15 chapters we begin to learn. We are not what we do or what other people think about us. We are who Jesus says we are. Beloved children of God. And that we're forever situated in that identity. Not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. Forever situated in his mercy and his love. And now I'm not pursuing my calling to prove something to myself or to earn something with God or or to make a big statement that everybody will notice. No, no, it's not coming from that place because inside now, because of the 15 years, if I cooperate, I'm in a very restful place because I know I'm God's beloved and I have everything I need. So now I can just join him freely to be a part of what he's doing in the world. And David, in those 15 chapters, he played actually a lot of different roles. He was a shepherd. He was a musician for the king. He was a hero, a military commander, a husband, and eventually king. But I want you to listen to the words he wrote in Psalm 131. This will show you the kind of thing that happens in those 15 chapters. He says, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. He's saying, I'm I'm a beloved child of God. God is my father and my mother. I'm content. I know who he is. I know who I am. I'm not trying to prove anything to myself or the world anymore. And in those 15 chapters, he's going to take you through all sorts of roles, but he wants to ground you in your identity in him. And in those 15 chapters, you'll have a greater and greater ability to name and know your calling. You're, you're going to begin to see that golden thread running through all the chapters of your life and realize there's this incredible partnership that God designed you for with him that will bring his influence and impact into the world and it will bring you your greatest joy and fulfillment. And see, right now, you know, where I'm at with the Kansas City Underground, after 25 years of pursuing my calling, I can see that literally all of it, even the really crappy chapters, how important they were to prepare me for this moment. I, I, that 
that church I helped plant became a really big church. And it was like strong liquor, and it got to my head. And I started to think I was my performance as a preacher. I was the number of people who were attending. I was, and it's almost comical, isn't it? Isn't it funny how we all fall into these cliches in our own arena? But I wasn't seeing it. And I had some undealt with business, like wounds from my past that I was trying to fix through my work and performance and affirmation. And, and guess what happened? It train wrecked. And I hurt my marriage profoundly. I hurt my kids. And I had to go down into the basement of my soul with Jesus and start all over again. And he started to heal those wounds that I had just been ignoring for so many years. I started to get into really authentic community where they saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and I look back at that time where I had, to, had, I had to quit. I actually had to quit my job. That's how bad it was. And, and I, I felt like God put me up on the hillside, just an invisible dude. And he got me to the place where, guess what? I, I didn't need anything else. I remember sitting on my porch one Christmas, and the snow was coming down. And I thought, man, if I can just be a faithful husband and father and love my neighbor as well and be faithful to you, Jesus, it's all I need. And now I look at what, what I'm getting to do today and my wife and I, the sense of unity that we have. And we both have this sense, this is the thing Jesus has been preparing us for our entire lives. And what I'm telling you is I'm not special. Some of you, you're maybe in your train wreck stage where I was seven years ago, and I just want to tell you, you're not done. Your calling is not canceled. And he wants to redeem it. He wants to take all that broken stuff and, and transform it into something useful and beautiful. So there's two things I want to say in closing. One, you have a masterpiece mission. Please believe it. Don't pass by the wonder that you look at in the mirror every morning. Number two, remember the 15 years. Remember the process. And you've been given some amazing tools over these last few weeks. But in closing, I want us to take, take us back to the, the most primal way we discover our calling. And that's by going back to our designer. And I want to introduce you to something that in the Kansas City Underground we call the original design prayer. You all have heard about uh, the unique journey here, which helps you discover your special calling. Uh, we have a whole team in the Kansas City Underground that's called the Personal Discovery Team, which is all about helping people discover their masterpiece mission or their calling. And one piece of that is something we call the original design prayer. See, we have lots of assessments and tools to help people get a sense of, you know, how they're gifted. Like we do strength finders and Enneagram and we use DISC and all these other assessments. And those are great. But when you get right down to it, the most powerful source for discovering your personal calling is actually the voice of God. So we're going to create some time to pray. I'm going to lead you through this original design prayer. And we're going to start with the time of just calming ourselves. And we're going to do that. I'm going to pray through Psalm 131 to just take some deep breaths, to slow down, for us to really be present. And then I'm going to pray after that, like that all the other voices would be quieted, like that voice of the inner critic that's always yelling at you. I'm going to pray that that gets quiet. Or some of us have a voice from someone who's been influential in our life who it's now become this like toxic script in our head. I'm going to pray that that gets quieted. Like all everything else will get quieted. And then we're going to pray this very simple prayer that asks our loving God to speak directly to us about our design. 
So if you will, close your eyes and uh, just try to become present. It might help you to actually uh, use your imagination to picture what is true or what is real. And what is true and real is that Jesus is present here right now. He's fully present. So perhaps it'll help you to picture his face. I'm going to pray through Psalm 131, and you can just sink down into this, into a place of calm. And let me pray for us before I read it. Father, I ask right now you just quiet our hearts and our thoughts so we can hear from you in this time. I ask that you'd use this time to bring each one of us to a place where we can hear you clearly. Now make this psalm your prayer as I read it. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with things too great and marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child on its mother's lap. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, people of God, hope in the Lord, both now and forever. And now I'm going to pray for those other voices to be quieted. Lord, we ask that you would quiet all the other voices but yours, the voices of busyness or worry or the inner critic or the opinion of others or even the voice of the enemy. We quiet them now in the name of Jesus. Give us ears to hear your voice as we rest in you. And now we're going to pray the original design prayer. You can open your eyes. It'll be on the screens. I invite you to pray it out loud with me. If you want to, though, you can pray it silently. That's fine, too. And after we pray together, I'm going to invite you then to just sit quietly for about 30 seconds. I'm going to ask, we're going to ask together that the Lord would speak to us about our original design. And then when we're quiet, try hard not to try. Just sit quietly. And maybe the Lord will give you a verse. Or maybe he'll give you a phrase or a couple words. Maybe he'll show you an image or maybe a song will come to mind. And if something comes to mind, just simply ask the Lord, what is it that you want me to know about that? And if you don't hear anything, that's just fine. Just enjoy God's presence. So I invite you to pray this with me, the original design prayer. Let's pray together. Father, you created me. You know me better than anyone else. Father, I know I am your beloved child. I know that I am a temple of yours, Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, I am your disciple. Lord God, who do you say that I am? What is my unique calling? What is your original design for me? I invite you to close your eyes now. And wait. And listen. Jesus. I pray for every single person who heard something today. Lord, that I pray that whatever is of you would stay. And I pray be like a seed in the ground. And I pray to take root. 
And I pray eventually it would come to a harvest, like 40, 60, 100-fold harvest. I pray for all that heard silence, that they would not judge that or judge themselves, that they would simply rest. And that sometimes, Lord, the thing we need the most is actually the quiet. That the quiet is an invitation to come deeper. And Lord, I pray for each one of us that what we've received, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and insight and show us who to share it with this week. I encourage you to share it with someone. And Lord, give insight in that conversation. And I pray that you would unleash Heartland. Continue, Lord. Just fill this family with people who know and can name their special calling. And I ask for that in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.